In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without thus outer brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to his son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us and we hope you'll stick around. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's hangry, that is, hangry, that is, hangry, that is. I'm Matthew, the nuclear Calvinist. I'm Michael, the ex-Mormon apologist. I'm Paul Bunyan. Let's get into it. So, Michael, we get on here and uh, David goes, oh, so you're Paul? I thought you were an old man. You are. I mean, he looks great for his age, doesn't he, David? <laughs> I think, you know, his picture is like, it's like a zoomed out picture of him and his wife, like, walking. Yeah. And uh, I had seen you on Facebook. You had messaged me a couple of times. And for some reason, I just thought you were like mid-60s or something. Whoa. You floor noise are rough with the age, man. Like you were like Michael's mentor, like just some old person that took him under his wing. All right. Welcome back, Fireflies, to this episode of the Outer Brightness podcast. Uh, this week, we're going to be reacting to a video uh, from Book of Mormon Central. Uh, it's their series, uh, their Come Follow Me series. Come Follow Me Insights, I think, is the actual name. Um, it's a, it's a video from September 21st to 27th that they posted on YouTube. One of my sisters who is still LDS recently sent me a, a message and she wrote, quote, remember when we were talking about faith versus works and grace? I remember that you felt that in the LDS church, we don't truly believe in being saved by grace. I was confused because if you listen to this podcast, this is what I remember being taught in seminary. We might still agree to disagree about what the LDS church actually teaches, end quote. And after she sent that, she linked me to the YouTube video uh, from Come Follow Me Insights. Uh, again, it's by Book of Mormon Central. Uh, the video is a little less than an hour long, and it contains the teachings of Taylor Halverson and Tyler Griffin. Uh, these two men are discussing 3 Nephi chapters 12 through 16 from the Book of Mormon. Within the narrative of the Book of Mormon, the resurrected Jesus appears to a people group called the Nephites, who, according to the Book of Mormon, lived somewhere in the Americas. So in 3 Nephi chapter 11, Jesus appears, and in the following several chapters, he preaches to the Nephites a sermon that is nearly verbatim, the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapters 5 to 7 in the Bible. 
There are several key differences between the Matthean Sermon on the Mount and what Latter-day Saints refer to as the Sermon at the Temple in 3rd Nephi. Taylor and Tyler focus in on one of the key differences, namely the comparison between Matthew 5.48 and 3rd Nephi 12.48. Matthew 5.48 reads, quote, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. But 3rd Nephi 12.48 reads, Therefore I would that ye should be perfect, even as I, or your Father who is in heaven, is perfect. Today we're responding to the claims made in this video. And also today we have a special guest with us, David Flournoy. Uh, he's uh, Michael's brother. I'm going to kick it over to David to give us a little bit of an introduction to himself. Hey guys, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I've listened to, to several of y'all's podcasts. I'm excited to be here. Uh, just a little bit about myself. Um, I'm not necessarily an apologist or anything along those natures, but uh, I have been in the missionary field for a long time. I was board missionary at 16, board mission leader at 18, back from my mission probably the last eight years of board missionary as well. And now I'm in primary. So kind of a, a, there's a trend going and then primary. It's one of those inspiration versus desperation type things. But I I have enjoyed talking with people of all faiths uh, about the gospel and differences that we have. All right. Thanks, David. Did, uh, did Michael wrangle you into this? And if so, how? Uh, So Michael and I actually, we, we talk uh, just about every day uh, about, you know, the job, because we have this, a similar uh, job that we do. So we rant about that. And then it usually starts on that. And then almost every day it goes into some topic of the gospel. Uh, and we, we have good conversations on that. And so on my way home, he was like, man, watching this long video. And uh, we started talking about it. And I was like, huh, that sounds interesting. And uh, hence, Here's the link, and I watched the link, and here I am. And uh, just so you guys know, I mean, I know he says he's not an apologist, but his nickname is officially the bro-Mormon apologist. Is that because it's like pro-Mormon, but bro? Wait, that's not the name that I gave him, is it? I already no, forgot what it? it. What was it? The bro-man? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The bro-man bro apologist. Right. Yeah. Since I'm the Mormon, the ex-Mormon apologist, he's the bro-man apologist. Wow, I'm out of it. We're only like five minutes into it and we're already off the rails at this point. <laughs> not not anything new for us, guys. I'll tell you that. All right, so what we've got here is we've got a uh, number of questions based on the video. We're going to share a couple of clips uh, from the video and then just kind of have a conversation about it. Does that sound all right? Mm-hmm. Sounds good. All right, I'm going to queue up the first clip here for us and we'll get it going. All right, here we go with the first clip. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, 3rd Nephi 12 through 16. We're just so excited to talk about the time that Jesus spent with the Nephites and the Lamanites in the New World. And we're going to give a perspective here that uh, might be helpful as you read these chapters. And this is a covenantal perspective. No surprise, we've been talking about covenants a lot. And actually, so has God. The scriptures are very much focused on his covenants with us and the covenants he's offered us so that we can return back to his presence. And let's just spend, just as a review, a reminder of the two major covenants from uh, the ancient times, from the time of the Bible. It's two covenantal mountains. We have the Abrahamic covenant. And symbolically, we might say that that comes from uh, Mount Moriah. And then we have the Sinai covenant with Moses and the Israelites after God had saved them from Egyptian bondage. 
And we'll just put Sinai here. And so the covenant path, in some ways, crosses right between these two mountains, and it is Jesus that binds us all together. All right, that's the uh, that's the first video, guys. Um, so what do you, what are your comments on this opening section of of the video from Book of Mormon Central? Uh, what is this? quote unquote, covenant path that they're talking about. And do you remember that terminology being used uh, when you were LDS, Michael and Matthew? And, and what's your experience, David, with that, uh, that terminology of covenant path? Uh, Matthew, why don't you take it first? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it was interesting. Um, I don't really ever remember just thinking all, all about the opening section. I don't really remember ever being taught that there was the two mounts and that Jesus connects the two. I was always kind of believed that you know, it was always kind of taught more in dispensations where God would reveal the fullness of his truth throughout each dispensation. So he started with Adam and then with Noah and then Enoch, I think was, I think that's how the timeline goes. And then uh, with uh, Abraham and Moses. So it's like each time that the gospel is given to the earth, each time there's a new dispensation. And so then with each dispensation, they give authority, they give doctrine and they set up the church and then Eventually, at the end of each dispensation, it ends in apostasy. So throughout time, we kind of see the cycle of, of apostasy or, or of God revealing the gospel, giving everything necessary to the gospel, and then people turning away from the gospel and then kind of having to start anew. And so then that leads up to the restoration with Joseph Smith to where it starts all over again. So this idea of, of where he speaks about the two mountains, like uh, with, with, um, with Abraham and Moses, it's interesting that he contrasts those two things or he makes that connection to where... Uh, maybe we'll talk about this. Uh, I think that's in the second point, but just briefly, basically talks about how Abraham, it was God's promises to us. And with Moses, it's God or it's our promises to God. And then Jesus bridges that gap. I'd never really heard that, that explained in that kind of way. And um, I don't know. I don't ever really remember being taught that. Maybe I just fell asleep in that seminary class or something, but I always saw that the, I was always taught that the law of Moses was kind of like a lesser law is kind of more external ordinances, the lesser authority was given because of disobedience uh, in the desert that they had disobeyed God. And then that's why they were given, you know, kind of the carnal commandments and the ironic priesthood. So I don't know with that paradigm in, in mind, it doesn't make, I don't know. I'm trying to bridge that gap in my brain of what he's trying to say when he meet, when he says Jesus bridges the gap between Abraham and Moses, because I see it almost as like a downhill slope. Do you know what I mean? Where, Abraham had the fullness of the gospel, but then by the time of Moses, they had kind of disobeyed. And so God gave them the lesser commandments and lesser ordinances. So to me, it didn't seem like two mounts and Jesus bridged the gap. It was more like a slope that went downward that eventually went back up with Jesus returning. So I don't know. Does, does any of that make sense or am I just rambling at this point? It, uh, it makes sense. It sounds familiar to me, Matthew. I mean, uh, that's kind of my experience as well. Uh, my understanding was that uh, Abraham had... The fullness of the gospel, you know, the same covenant path that we had today, you know, in modern times, that is uh, being baptized, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, um, probably all the temple ordinances as well. And then same thing with Adam, the Pearl of Great Price says that he was baptized by the Holy Spirit. So I'm like, all those ordinances are, are still there. And it was also my understanding that there were periods of dispensation where the gospel was on the earth, and then there were periods of apostasy where there wasn't a prophet and there weren't there there wasn't a covenant path but i never fully understood why there was a a law of moses in the middle of that uh, cuz the law of moses never seems to have gone away 
since it was instituted until Christ came. And so it seemed like there was never really a full period of dispensation after that where they were living the higher law again. And definitely would be interested in David's thoughts on that. But uh, the law of Moses kind of uh, threw a wrench in there for me. Made a little a little bit harder for me to understand. Uh, what do you think, Paul? Yeah, let's go to David first, and then I'll I'll take my turn. Cool. Uh, so first off, uh, I'm kind of there with you. I'm, I'm not sure exactly where they're saying Jesus bridges the gap between these two. Uh, I was also taught uh, dispensations, prophets, apostasies. Um, along with that, there's a uh, kind of the the idea of an ongoing restoration, like they, uh, they've talked about that in general conferences where we know that now we live in the fullness of the dispensation of times where it's supposed to be a full restoration. But in recent years, they're saying that the restoration is still continuing, that we're still receiving revelation, uh, which is what you'd expect with a church that has revelation and a, a prophet, there's continued revelation. Um, but I, I would imagine that it'd be similar in each of the dispensations in, uh, in olden times too. Like, you know, they, they, I don't know if they had the fullness of the gospel every single time, but that there was a prophet and there were truths being restored. Uh, I, I'd imagine with Abraham and Adam specifically, yes, they probably did. And I agree with you, Matthew, that it does seem like a slippery slope down, um, but yeah, I, I don't know if I would say that every single time that the prophet was on the earth, that the fullness of the gospel was present as well. Because um, if we were to say, compare it to now where it's 200 years since the restoration, there's still things being revealed. I'd imagine it was similar back then. Um, I was also taught about the Abrahamic covenant uh, growing up, though. Um, that was kind of like the idea of missionary work, like the whole world will be blessed by his seed sort of thing. Uh, I'm sure we're familiar with that as well. So I, I was taught about the Abrahamic covenant, not so much about a covenant with the Mosaic law, more of just, this is the 10 commandments. This is the law uh, and not necessarily a covenant being established with the Mosaic law. All right. Yeah. So you all have hit on a couple of things that I, I had taken notes on as well, especially with regard to, uh, you know, the, there's there's sort of this weird and interesting thing that that is going on in LDS theology where they talk about dispensations, right? And but in in LDS theology, uh, the dispensations are a little bit different than than what you see in broader Christianity with dispensationalists, um, because with with LDS view of dispensations, it's more related to the authority given to each of the the dispensation heads, um, and so there's that, but I also, uh, I was taking a look at my uh, theology professor's book, uh, Set Free, What the Bible Says About Grace, because I wanted to see, I remembered him saying something in there about covenants, and I wanted to revisit what he says. Um, and he's talking here specifically about uh, Holdrick Zwingli and the development of his uh, theology in the Reformation. Uh, and he says this, he says, having uh, thus rejected the view of baptism that Christendom had uniformly taught for 1500 years, Zwingli took it upon himself to create ex nihilo, a completely new doctrine of baptism. In so doing, he formulated a whole new hermene hermeneutical approach to the Bible now known as covenant theology. In summary, he rejected the traditional distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant and introduced the idea that ever since at least Abraham, 
there has been just one covenant of grace. What we call the new covenant is actually the same covenant God made with Abraham. The Mosaic covenant was merely a secondary temporary expedient. When it was set aside, the Abrahamic covenant continued on and still continues on today. Uh, the church today is under the covenant God made with Abraham. This is the concept of covenant unity. So I, I'm now going to be interested to kind of dig into to what Zwingli actually has to say about that. Um, rather than just uh, my theology professor's summary of it. But I found interesting in that description of Zwingli's theology with regards to covenants that it it very much mirrors uh, what you see in, in LDS teaching with regards to the law of Moses being a lower law and the, the law given to Abraham being a higher law, um, which is what I was uh, taught as a Latter-day Saint growing up. Um, and you see that especially like in the in the Joseph Smith translation of like Deuteronomy 10.2, where it says, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tables, which thou breakest. And here's where Joseph Smith adds in, save the words of the everlasting covenant of the holy priesthood, and thou shalt put them in the ark. And, you know, that I remember sitting in elders quorum lessons and, and, and being taught that, you know, that those kind of that, that kind of teaches, right, that that. Moses came down from the from the mountain and broke the tablets because he saw Israel in apostasy. And then he went back up on the mountain and got a different set of tablets. Uh, and that the, the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments was that lower law uh, that was given uh, kind of in, in anger, I guess. Um, with regards to what they're what Taylor and Tyler talk about in the video, the covenant path, Matthew and Michael and I were when we started talking about doing this episode. I was trying to remember like if I had ever heard that terminology and I, I don't remember it being a catchphrase or, or a buzzword when I was uh, still in the LDS church. Now I left in 2010, so it's been a good 10 years. Um, and I did, I did kind of search up on uh, the LDS website to see, you know, what's there. And I, I, the earliest thing I was able to find was the uh, in 2013, the primary general president gave a speech at BYU using that covenant path terminology in her title and then there's a poem published in the Friend Magazine, which is for children in 2014 called My Covenant Path. And then, uh, quote, keep on the covenant path, exclamation point, was, was Russell M. Nelson's title for his first message to the LDS Church as prophecier and revelator in 2018. So it seems like he's taken up some terminology that was initially um, used with, with children, it sounds like. So I'd be interested in, in David's thoughts on that, because for, for me, that, that terminology wasn't there. What, what's your experience over the last several years? Is, is that terminology really prominent right now? So I, I know we're always, we've always been talked about making and keeping covenants, renewing covenants. Uh, growing up, you know, I heard about the, there's the five saving ordinances sort of thing, which looking back at it with a more grace-centered, uh, I don't know, mind, I would say to me, there's only one saving ordinance and then the other ones kind of change what you're doing. Uh, but there's only one that actually brings you to the celestial kingdom. Um, but uh, yeah, there, there has been this talk about keeping covenants and making covenants with God. Uh, and, and it's been, I feel like this video has actually been helpful for Latter-day Saints because when you look at, let's just say the first covenant, baptismal covenant, uh, we promise to take his name upon us, to keep his commandments and always remember him, which is impossible. We're not going to always remember him. And we're human. We're flawed. We have a fallen nature. We're not going to always keep his commandments. And so it, there becomes this uh, 
contention within ourselves or that I, I don't know the right word exactly, but there's this uh, battle in between ourselves where there's the, Hey, we've made this covenant with God that we're going to be perfect, so to speak. Um, and God's keeping his side, you know, he's, he's perfect. He's just, he's righteous. But I, I could totally see how there's this battle in between ourselves where we're constantly falling short. And so I, I feel like the beginning part of this, while I don't agree with his terminology or where he gets to where he was going, I, I do feel like the beginning of that video was helpful for Latter-day Saints to be more grace-centered and allow themselves, you know, like say, you know what, I'm not yoked on my own, but I'm yoked with the Savior and he's carrying that burden. So I, I think it will be helpful to a lot of Latter-day Saints. And, and ultimately, that's why my sister sent it to me um, in our ongoing conversation uh, about you know, our, our differing beliefs. So, um, we'll, we'll see if the, the video as a whole, uh, it lands there. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it does, but, uh, anybody want to comment a little bit further on that first section or anything that's been said before we play the second clip? Yeah. I just kind of, kind of echo what, what David was saying too. I mean, I, uh, didn't agree with his terminology or how he arrived at where he did, but I mean, uh, I do have to say that was one of the things that I did like, you know, he said, nobody can make us perfect except for Christ. And then I thought that what he said about how Christ wants our loyalty, I thought that that was true, at least. I don't think that that's what, you know, perfection means in that, in that context, but you know, we'll, we'll get there. All right. I'll cue up the next video clip. And as we've talked about just briefly, the Abrahamic covenant is all about God's promises to us. The Mosaic Covenant is what God invited us to promise to Him. So it's our promises to God. And this is summarized by the Ten Commandments, which explain or offer a pathway for us to show our loving loyalty back to God. When God offered this covenant, He basically said, here's how I would like for you to show me your love and loyalty so that you can prosper in the land. Hey, uh, so that's the second of the two clips. Uh, do you agree with the way Taylor Halverson, Halverson characterizes these covenants? And if so, uh, why or why not? Okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and jump in there um, on this. First of all, um, it sounded, I mean, it, it looked like just, this is the first time I actually have viewed what he wrote on the board because I've been driving listening to this video um, every time I've, I've viewed it. Um, but it seems that he's almost kind of saying that these covenants are two sides of the same covenant. Is that the impression that you got? Because um, we know that the covenant path in Mormonism includes our side, things that we are supposed to do. And he's categorizing that under the Mosaic law. And then he's putting God's promises under the Abrahamic covenant. But my understanding is that these are two totally separate uh, covenants. And so I don't think you can tie them together like that and say that they are both working simultaneously. Um, the law of Moses isn't, you know, in effect uh, for us now. So, so that's my first thing. And this, and, and if we're saying the, the Abrahamic covenant is something entirely different, um, at least in the LDS mindset, it still doesn't work because there is still something required of us. It's not just the promises that God is making to us. So I don't, 
I don't really understand how he's uh, coming up with this. It makes no sense to me. Uh, I'll, I'll jump in as well. I, I've never heard of them being tied together. Uh, I am active in the church. I, I've never heard of them being tied together. I mean, it's an interesting comparison. Uh, I'm right there with you, Michael. They have no relation whatsoever to each other. They're completely different covenants made to different groups of people. Uh, in fact, I've never heard of the law of Moses being a covenant, more of a, this is what you need to do. These are my commandments and not uh, show loyalty to me. It's thou shall not. But yeah, I, I would say they're separate as well. Yeah, just to, I was going to add to that not only, well, it's interesting because it seemed like looking back, trying to remember all those you know Sunday school lessons, when we talk about the Ten Commandments, it's... We, we teach it to follow it because not because we feel like, you know, because obviously we're not under the Mosaic covenant, but it's, it's kind of like David was saying earlier about how with the restoration, the idea is that they're kind of things from every dispensation are kind of being brought back to our dispensation, to our time. And so like the 10 commandments was kind of like, it's not like we're rewriting the stone tablets, but it's like, okay, God's bringing these back. These are things that God's asked us to follow today. Um, but I wouldn't describe so from my perspective now, I wouldn't say that, that our promises to God are summarized by the Ten Commandments. Since I, so since I've left the LDS Church, uh, I've kind of gone into the Reformed uh, understanding of Scripture. And one thing that they always talk about is covenant theology. And that's one thing I really love studying. And there's, there's not one single understanding of covenant theology. There are different streams of covenant theology. So I could probably talk your heads off all day about covenant theology and people's different understanding of it and stuff. It's really fascinating to me because I do, I do. I was counting on you do that, doing, uh, doing that. So go <laughs> ahead and riff on it for a little bit. Okay. You guys can take a nap or make a sandwich or something, but, uh, but yeah. So one of the things is we talk about the covenant of grace and, and, and that's not something that you can, that, that term is just referring to the gospel, you know, the, the gospel that God preaches to us today, where, well, it starts all the way back in Genesis chapter three, where God made the, the promise, uh, you know, the serpent would, would bruise your heel, uh, but the seed of the woman would crush his head. And the seed of the woman is specifically referring to Christ. So that's, that's called the Proto-Evangelium or Proto-Evangelium. I don't know what it's called, you know, how to pronounce it. But yeah, that's, that's what it's referring to is like, that's, that's the first time when God promised that sin would be destroyed, you know, that there would be a Messiah to come. And since then it's been slowly revealed in more, in more defined and clearer images and teachings. So we see like with Moses raising the serpent on the staff that that's representing, that's pointing to Christ who would die on the cross. We see with the animal sacrifices uh, starting even just from Genesis, that that's pointing to how there would be a perfect lamb that would be slain for our sins. So there's this idea of, the, of this progression in revelation, this progression and becoming more and more clear as to what would be revealed. So it's not like a, a haphazard kind of like, you know, God revealed something to this group of people and, and they rebelled and, and they failed in their covenant path, I guess you could say. And then he revealed it again to someone else. You know, it's, it's God has been working throughout history to slowly reveal more and more over time. So yeah, I'll kind of leave it at that. Cause if I keep going, I'll just keep going forever. But um, so the reformed view is that the 10 commandments are the summary of the moral law. So uh, in the Mosaic covenant, there were the reformed view roughly, and, there, and, it's, and you can't separate each law into one of three categories. There's overlap, but there are three basic categories. There's the civil judicial law, you know, like when it comes to punishments, when it comes to 
Um, you know, if you steal your, your neighbor's ox, you pay them back so much plus extra, you know, those kind of laws. Um, there's also the ceremonial laws dealing with all the animal sacrifices that they had to perform, you know, the cleanliness laws, uh, those kind of things, the ceremonial cleanliness. And then there's the moral laws. And um, there's a great book. It's called uh, The Finger of God, I think. And I can't remember the author's name, but it's a really deep book. And I've been trying to read it, but it's a slow read because it's so deep. But he goes in and shows how all of the, the civil codes are kind of like just going further in depth of the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are like general moral principles. And then each section of scripture after that in Leviticus and Deuteronomy goes into more depth on how, okay, here's how you apply the first commandment. Here's how you apply the second commandment, that kind of thing. Uh, it's really fascinating to read that. So I would see the 10 commandments, not as something that, uh, that God has invited us to promise to him, but it's, it's the moral law, which is the law by which we are held accountable to God. All people are held accountable to God. So we see even before, even before Moses in Israel, we see people being judged um, for idolatry, for adultery, things like this. And so when we stand before God to be judged, you know, we'll be held accountable to him by the 10 commandments or, you know, that's a summary of the moral law. It's not the full extent of the moral law. It's just kind of the summary. It's kind of boiling it down to like, you know, these are the core tenets of the moral law that God expects us to live by. So sorry about that. I tried to boil it down as much as I could, but there's a lot to talk about there. Yeah. So with regards to what you commented on, Michael, uh, yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm struggling to understand where where they're going with the with kind of equating the Abrahamic covenant with the Mosaic covenant and trying to make it like two sides of the same covenant, um, where where one is God's promises and and the other is our promises to God. I know that's kind of the the standard LDS definition of of a covenant, right? It's a two way promise. God makes promises and and we make promises. Um, so it's like they're trying to kind of fit that onto the two covenants, but I don't see them as related in that way. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. Cause um, if you're going to do that, then neither one of them is really a covenant until you right. put them together. I mean, it's just kind of like, okay, two wrongs are now making a right, I guess. Yeah. Um, so um, going on from there in the video, uh, Taylor notes that some scholars think that Matthew modeled the first five chapters of his gospel on the first five books of Moses uh, or the Torah. And, and that is consistent with the theme of Matthew's gospel, which presents Jesus as the new Moses. Um, closing out that section of the video, however, he kind of wraps in some LDS thought uh, in reference to Jesus's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, and I'll load up our next video clip. And finally, right before they enter the Holy Land, Moses summarizes the entire Mosaic Covenant again for the, for, uh, before they go in the Holy Land. And the entire book of Deuteronomy is this covenant. In fact, Deuteronomy is a fancy word that literally means second law or second telling or teaching of the law. So, so essentially, Moses gets on a mountain and delivers the law to the Israelites before they enter into the Holy Land. Well, let's think about this. Matthew 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. What happens in Matthew 5? Jesus gets on a mountain as the new Moses and delivers an update to this covenant. He basically updates Deuteronomy, updates the stipulations, updates what we should be promising to God, updates how we show our faithfulness to God. And so the Sermon on the Mount is the update to the covenant. And so 
Sure, if you were a Jew living in the time of Nephi, the way you'd show your loving loyalty to God in the covenant is by keeping the Ten Commandments. In the time of Jesus, Jesus said, Moses said, here's the stipulations for how to show loyalty to God. I now say unto you, do these things. And so this is what modern revelation's about. Well, in the time of Jesus, it would have been modern re revelation, is that God will update the stipulations for showing loyalty in order that we might have full access to the promises he offers us. So with this perspective, I want you to think about how what Jesus does for the Nephites now is something similar. He comes and says, you have been living these stipulations, these commandments, good job. Well, in some cases you weren't, but let me give you an update for how to show love and loyalty to God in the covenant. And in our day, we have modern day prophets and they reveal to us the will of God. And every now and then there are updates on the expectations that God provides for us for how we live faithfully to him. All right, guys. So that's a little bit of longer of a clip from the ones we viewed before, but uh, is, is that what you view Jesus as doing in the Sermon on the Mount? Was, was he updating the Mosaic stipulations to receive God's promises? Let me, let me throw a question to Matthew real quick and then I'll answer this. But I just want his opinion, especially in light of what he just was saying about uh, covenant theology. Um, so he this guy he makes a, a comparison to Deuteronomy, the second telling of the law, and then says that in Matthew five, which is supposed to be the parallel that Jesus is making an update. Would you say that in Deuteronomy that what's being talked about in there is a an update to the law of Moses, or is it more specification on that law? So you're you're speaking of. Deuteronomy itself and not of Matthew 5? Is that what you mean? Yeah, because you, you mentioned the uh, the books that come after the, the law of Moses is given is talking about those laws specifically. Would you say that that is an update? So, yeah, it's like in, it's in uh, it's both in Exodus, I think, and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where it's kind of fleshing out all of the particulars of the laws that would be executed in Israel at that time. And so a lot of them are kind of like case laws. I, I think that's a term, you know, where, where judges will take like a principle and say, okay, we have this principle, uh, judges and lawyers, they'll take this principle and they'll say, how do we apply it to this situation and that situation and that situation? And so it's kind of like, that's kind of what God's doing is he's saying the 10 commandments, they're the only commandments that are written by the finger of God directly. And um, so the rest of the commandments are written by basically Moses. So the 10 commandments hold a special place in the law. And that's one reason why, Reformed scholars believe that it's it's very clear that God made these to be special. They're within the law that he gave to Moses, but they're distinct in that they're, you know, written by him. They're the only ones kept on, on the tablets and they're only ones kept in the Ark of the Covenant. All the rest of the laws are kept beside it. So they held a special place. So um, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, they're not, they're not changing or updating the law. They're just kind of going into the more specifics of how to actually kind of enforce that law, if that makes sense. And I think what he was saying is that in Matthew 5, Jesus is updating the, the, the law that's given in Deuteronomy. I think that's what the point he was making. Okay, because I, I kind of, uh, and I guess it depends on how you interpret updating, um, because at least when I was LDS, my understanding was that Jesus was coming and he was adding commandments that weren't there originally. So he was actually... Uh, you know, updating it in the sense that it's like, you know, writing new chapters in a book, you know, really making the commandments more strict. And the way that I, 
view it now is that he uh, was kind of doing what you just said was going on in, in Deuteronomy, that he was specifying what the law already says. He wasn't really changing it. And so, uh, you know, and, and one of the reason, reasons I'm saying that is uh, you look at Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 19, it says, Now we know that what whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And I know some translations will say that we may, may be made guilty before God. So when I was LDS, I'm like, okay, there's, there's uh, stricter commandments. This is great because these commandments allow us to become holy, to become righteous, and to come closer to God. But the way that I view it now is that the law is there to condemn us not to make us holy. And the law was already condemning us. And all that that these stricter uh, specifications do is make it condemn us even more. And I think that that's what Jesus is really doing is he's saying, you know, you've been saying not to commit adultery, but I'm telling you, if you even look at a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery in your heart. And so I think what he's doing is not really an update. He is showing these people how strict that law actually is. And uh, one of the things he says in the video, and I don't remember if it was in this clip specifically, but he quotes Jesus as kind of saying, um, you've been saying this, or you've heard this, but now I am telling you. And he kind of misquotes Jesus because Jesus doesn't say, but now I am telling you, as in like it's something brand new. He says, but I tell you that this is the case. So I don't, I don't really agree with what, what he's implying in the video. Um, so LBS perspective, I, I kind of think of it like a lower law, higher law type thing. Um, maybe not necessarily that it's a, a different aspect of the gospel. It's just a more like Michael was saying, a stricter interpretation or stricter understanding of it. Uh, kind of like, you know, there's the law of tithing and there's a law of consecration. It's like, okay, don't kill, uh, don't commit adultery. Don't even lust after somebody. Like here's here's the higher aspect. Um, as far as covenants go, it, it's interesting. The LDS covenant of baptism. Um, it, it's here in the prayer. It says uh, basically that we're willing to take upon us the name of the Son. We'll always remember Him. We'll keep His commandments. Uh, that we may always have His Spirit to be with us. In lieu with that, we'll also be forgiven of our sins. But I think it's interesting that it says that will be willing to take upon us his name because really it's our willingness, but we're not the one that puts his name on us. He's the one that, that clothes us in his robes of righteousness. Uh, as we accept that covenant, we now have his name on us. So my theology, Michael's kind of told me about there's three different types of grace and I, I'm going to kind of rant on a little bit. I apologize, but there's an imputed righteousness, there's amputated righteousness and there's enabled righteousness. Um, and so my understanding is when we're baptized, we take upon us the name of Christ. We go into the water, our old self dies, and we become new in Christ. So now we have Christ's name on us. We're children of Christ. When we're judged at the judgment fire of God, they're going to say, you know, here's all your sins, or I don't care how many you repented of, you're going to have sins. You don't make it. You're not there. Oh, but you have Christ's name on you. You're good. You know, it's been imputed into you, uh, so you're you're saved, pretty much. LDS theology, I think it fits in well with baptism. If you're taking his name upon you, now you have his name, you're saved. Uh, the next thing 
is a path called discipleship, which the next guy goes into a little bit, but I feel like he makes it sound like this is the path to salvation and not necessarily the path of discipleship. And that's kind of where I was off on that. Uh, but I feel like the path of discipleship, Elder Uchtdorf has talked about it, it's been talked about uh, several times, uh, and it goes right along with, I believe, the um, evangelical belief of sanctification, which is basically after, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but after you've been saved or had his, in, his righteousness imputed to you, you are then on a lifelong journey to become more and more like him. And so when you were looking at this higher law that Christ gives me, I look at this as not necessarily a path that this is my requirements to salvation, but rather that this is what I need to do to become more, a, a better follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, so imputed at, at baptism, and then as I'm becoming a disciple of Christ, I'm amputating sin from me, but that doesn't save me. I'll never be able to amputate enough sin from me to save. And then as I'm following and doing the things that Christ wants me to do, he's enabling me with his power to do it. But ultimately, the power of salvation is amputated, not amputated, imputated to me uh, in my belief at baptism. I, that's a whole nutshell. I apologize. That's OK. Can I can I ask a follow up question? Go for it. If um, if Christ's righteousness is imputed at baptism, why the further covenants? Why the temple covenants and ordinances? Uh, yeah, I, I thought you might ask that. So basically, the way I understand it, when we're baptized, his righteousness is imputed to us. Um, and it talks about in Second uh, Nephi and also if you were to take the LDS position in uh, John chapter 3, verse 5, where it talks about, you know, uh, being born of the water and the spirit in order to enter into heaven uh, and then to, to see heaven, pretty much the kingdom of God. Uh, so being baptized brings you right there to the celestial kingdom. You're there with God. Um, I believe the LDS theology, and I want to say Christian theology too on this, is when you're in heaven, you're an angel to the most high. Um, so the further ordinances, when you... Uh, when you're endowed, the covenant you make at that point is to become pretty much his promise that you'll become a king uh, in the following kingdom, uh, in the Lord's kingdom. And then the last one is exaltation, which is eternal marriage. Um, and so that one is kind of a, a partnership in order to have children, whatever it may be, spirit children, physical children. There's no specifications that I know of, but in order to be exalted, uh, in my understanding, it's something that only a married man and a married woman can do. Uh, so that's kind of those other covenants are more or less what you're doing in, in heaven, but not necessarily getting to heaven. Okay. So is it your view then that, that everyone who is baptized into the LDS church is automatically inherit an inheritor of the celestial kingdom? Um, Michael and I have actually talked about this uh, a lot um, I want to say yes. When you're when you're baptized, I would say you should. But it's interesting because at some point, salvation is not just a checklist. It's a personal thing with God. You know, you have to have that moment where Christ, uh, you've accepted Christ in your heart. And I think it's interesting. Um, we, we've talked a lot about this because you know, you know, and Alma talks about uh, you know if you just have a desire to believe. Uh, even as if it was a seed that that will grow, 
Um, and if we're talking about that as a faith towards salvation, faith doesn't need to be a lot to enter into salvation. Uh, I believe it's Jesus that talks about faith the size of a mustard seed. Um, so, I mean, even if your faith isn't that great, um, it, if you're answering the questions to baptism to be baptized truthfully, uh, I would say even an eight-year-old could be saved. But the other thought that I had is when you get the gift of the Holy Ghost, it says, uh, and I'll have to look at it, but I believe it's an invitation to receive the Holy Ghost. I say until you receive the Holy Ghost. Uh, it's not, I'm giving you the Holy Ghost. And so I'd, I'd almost say that there's a second part of baptism where you become an actual follower of Christ, where you receive the Holy Ghost into you. And at that point, you have now completed it. Um, the only thing I have grievances with that is how do you know, <laughs> you know? Um, so I, I, I would want to, I don't know. It's, it's a hard one. I, I don't know if I can say every single person that has been baptized will 100% because there's so much about the heart that you don't know. And, and that's where I kind of like the idea of when you receive the Holy Ghost, that that's where you've completed uh, that ordinance in reality. Yeah. So there's, there's a passage in the Doctrine and Covenants um, 76, I believe, where it's talking about the three degrees of glory and it's talking about who the inheritors of the terrestrial kingdom are. And one of the things that it says about them is that they are those who are not valiant in the testimony of Christ. And so, you know, that that passage historically has been used by LDS leaders uh, to uh, enjoin Latter-day Saints to greater faithfulness. And and as I view this video um, and they're kind of setting up this idea that uh, modern prophets add on to update the requirements that that are upon us to show our faithfulness to show our loyalty to god then then they're kind of bringing in that classical lds uh soteriology or way of being saved of perfect obedience to whatever the current prophets and leaders of the church are saying are the requirements um do you see that as well guys in the video uh in the video i felt like it was and I don't, I don't know if we're going to get into the whole perfect equals loyalty thing. We will. Um, okay. So I'll kind of skip over that right now. Um, but it does seem to me more like instead of it being a perfection in order to keep the covenants, it's more of a, he's looking upon your heart and you're, as long as you're striving for it sort of thing that, that you're covered uh, is kind of what I got out of the first half of the video. All right. So uh, I thought it was interesting, too, that, um, gosh, it might have been, I think it was this, this first speaker. I get them mixed up because their names are like the same. <laughs> but he talks about how when Jesus went to the Nephites, uh, they had basically a command that was different from the biblical account, which is, you know, to follow those 12 disciples that, that he'd chosen and to say that I trust you enough to follow these inspired leaders. And uh, I kind of see that going that, that same way as you were saying, Paul, that there's going to be, you know, these, these updates. And so you're going to need to be faithful to what the leaders are saying at, at any given time. And so that could change. It's fluid kind of going with what David was saying too. I think that's kind of what it boils down to. Now, David, I don't think that your position is what most Latter-day Saints hold to. I don't think I've heard a lot of Latter-day Saints even mention imputation. So that's kind of, kind of rare, but he mentioned uh, some things that I 
that I talked about some categories and and just to kind of correct correct it a little bit. The ones that I said exist, I said there's three kinds of righteousness to David. You know, there's there's joint righteousness and there's enabled righteousness. So joint righteousness being that we do our best and God makes up the rest. Um, and enabled righteousness being that grace empowers us to overcome our sins and to actually be perfect. And then there's imputed righteousness where, you know, Christ's obedience is basically uh, given to us. And I think that the LDS mindset leans very heavily, at least at some point, even if you were to embrace imputed righteousness, that there's something you have to do first, um, whether it's baptism, and then that baptismal covenant has uh, the commandments attached to it. And so even though he says that Christ wants our loyalty, um, as we'll see in the second half of the video, what that loyalty eventually translates into is obeying what the leaders of the church say and keeping all of the commandments. And so it's not just loyalty, it is obedience as well. Yeah. Matthew, any thoughts there? I was thinking back towards this point and also the previous point where specifically on the point where he says that modern prophets and apostles sometimes update the stipulations for receiving God's promises. So he talks about how he reads in, in, um, in Matthew five and also in third Nephi. So he'll read the portion. Um, let's see. So it's in Matthew five. I've got a lot of, uh, tabs open. So it says, uh, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. I'm reading from the new American standard and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, are you good for nothing or Raka? I think it is in the King James. Uh, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into to the fiery hell. So it's kind of implied or taught even explicitly in when I was LDS that, yeah, like we were talking about this whole time that it's been said of old times, that's the old law. And then the new law, I'm going to add higher requirements, higher laws, higher commandments that you, that you are now asked to fulfill. But um, it's great in that book in, from the finger of God, he he talks about how, or might've been another book, but it's, it's, it's not that Jesus is giving an, an entirely new or higher expectations. It's kind of like, he's saying, here's what it says in the commandment. And then he kind of like divulges, he expounds it. He says, it's not just saying not to kill someone, not to murder, not to commit murder. That's not all it's talking about. It's also talking about, even if you curse someone, you good for nothing, you fool. Uh, there's passages you can find in the old Testament that say that, you know, that basically teach the exact same moral principle that you aren't supposed to curse out someone uh, for no reason. Uh, the same thing with committing adultery. You know, it's been said, do not commit adultery. But I say, if you look, a, look on a woman to lust after her, you commit adultery in your heart. But you can find passages in the Old Testament that also tell you not even to look upon someone. I mean, if you look at the Ten Commandments itself, the, what's the Tenth Commandment? Do not covet. So that's a lust. That's a sin of, of the heart, of the lust, of the mind. So even just sticking to the 10 commandments, we see that God is saying, look, it's not just about what you do outwardly. It's also about your thoughts, about your heart, about what's going on inside. So I don't think Jesus is teaching a new law. He's teaching them what they should know and probably what has been kind of maybe not corrupted, but kind of been lost in the shuffle over time. You know, they haven't been focusing on really the heart issue, really focusing on, okay, converting to God, you know, really not even, not just being circumcised with the flesh, but being circumcised with the heart. And so that's something I kind of wanted to point out that I don't, I don't think Jesus was teaching a whole brand new thing or a higher thing. I think he was trying to bring them back to where they should be or where God has called them to be. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, so we've, we've kind of covered 
uh, <laughs> we've kind of covered. Uh, I'm gonna note, I'm gonna ignore the chat. Uh, it looks like Mr. Pib is has arrived. Um, but we've kind of covered the next question that I had. I, I just want to comment on it a little bit. Uh, the next question was with kind of in relation to the way they kind of set up in the video. Uh, the, the kind of the classical LDS view is that you have uh, prophets and apostles throughout time who are going to update the stipulations uh, to receive God's promises, as Matthew said. Um, you know, one one passage, I guess, from from the Bible that I would point to with that regard is, uh, you know, Matthew 23, uh, which says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, quote, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So he's saying that they actually have that authority. Um so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Um, and that's not the only place within Jesus's ministry where he talks about the burdens that the, the scribes and the Pharisees lay upon the people, uh, the, the additional commands that uh, aren't really the heart of the gospel. And so I think that there's a danger there. And I, I think, you know, you'll see in the video later on that when when kind of the next guy takes over the teaching, he, he talks a little bit about the way that Latter-day Saints feel. And I would just challenge listeners to uh, to, to think about that. Why, why do Latter-day Saints feel the way that he is describing? Um, it's not uncommon. And so um, we'll go on to our next uh, video clip. In the next section of the video, uh, Taylor Halverson sets up the, their teaching on Matthew 5.48 and 3 Nephi 12.48, and he says this. Now, what's interesting is there's a summary statement that shows up both in the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament, as well as here in 3 Nephi. It's very significant. And sometimes we misunderstand it a bit as members of the church. Um, I know that I'm a perfectionist and I have struggled with this phrase in the past. And let me share it with you. It shows up at the very end of the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, both in Matthew 5 and in 3 Nephi 12. It is here in verse 48. After laying out many of the stipulate, updated stipulations of like how to be faithful to God, Jesus says, I would that ye should be perfect, even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect. Now let's unpack this just a bit. There's some interesting things going on. This phrase perfect, as I mentioned, has caused consternation and worry for people because we feel this need like, I gotta make myself perfect. And actually it's interesting. There's only one person that can truly make you perfect and that's Jesus. All that Jesus asks is for our loving loyalty. Now let's actually use a marriage metaphor. I'm sure my wife would, be, would love to be married to a perfect man. I'm not quite there yet. If, however, she has a loyal husband, that's actually sufficient. I may make mistakes, but I'm loyal. I'm completely committed to my wife. We are in a covenantal relationship and I am loyal to that. I may not be perfect, but I'm loyal. Similarly, she's loyal to me. And that's what God offers us. He has always been loyal to his people, always, always, always. And he wants our loyalty back. So it turns out that in a covenantal context, the word perfect actually can mean loyalty or faithfulness. And I find that very helpful because I cannot be perfect and I shouldn't try to be perfect because then I'm denying Jesus. And let me explain that just briefly. Only Jesus can truly make me perfect in the sense that I have 
no sin. Only Jesus can do that. I have to reach out to receive that from him, but that's through my loyalty and my faithfulness. And as a reminder, sacrament every week is an opportunity for us to declare our loyalty and our faithfulness to God. And so we actually are showing covenantal perfection by partaking of the sacrament every week. God does not make the gospel super hard. Now, life is hard, but he tries to keep it simple. Just love me, he says, and love your neighbor. All right, so let me ask you here. This is where we get to talk about this uh, perfect equals loyalty or faithfulness uh, equation. I know you wanted to touch on that, David, but it, it, do you think Taylor's teaching here is good news? And why or why not? Anyone jump in? Okay, I'm going to jump. I'm going to jump in there. Um, so I think that he is bringing up a, a very real problem, and he is exactly right when he says that there's consternation that is caused by this statement. Um, I'm a I'm a perfectionist as well. And so I had a lot of those same issues when I was LDS. I was always trying to be perfect and I was always falling on my face. And uh, I think he's 100% correct when he says that we can't be perfect. And, um, and that, you know, basically, if we're if we're trying to be perfect, we're kind of we're denying Christ, because he's the only one that can make us perfect, we cannot perfect ourselves. And like I said earlier, I do actually like what he said about um, what, what we really need to be is loyal to God. Um, I agree with that, but I think him trying to insert that into Matthew 5, 48 does not work. Um, it's, it just doesn't make sense. It's talking all about um, sin and, and righteousness. And then for him to suddenly say to be loyal, like, uh, like the fa- our Father in Heaven is loyal, uh, it just seems like a big stretch to me, and I'm pretty sure you're going to agree with that, David. Uh, <laughs> but then I think the bigger problem is you. He goes to uh, the account in Third Nephi, where all of a sudden Jesus comes and he says, "Be perfect, even as your, even as I and your Father in heaven is perfect." And that kind of implies, you know, if, if we're still using loyalty there, um, that implies that Jesus was not loyal during his mortal ministry. And he certainly was. I mean, to to go all the way to the point of, of going to the cross, I think you can't get any more loyal than that. So uh, those are my initial thoughts. I'll probably jump in and, and say some more here a little bit later, but I want to open it up to, to you other guys too. Uh, so I'll go ahead and jump in if that's cool. Um, so first off, I do completely agree with the idea that um, we should not be – kicking ourselves about not being perfect. I mean, we have a human nature, so obviously we will never be perfect on our own. That's a part of the problem I have with the next guy when he starts talking about like this staircase thing, when he's talking about uh, uh, the repentance process, how it's a continual cycle, which I think is great for discipleship. But when he starts talking about it being our path to heaven, uh, it's like, uh, I don't know about that. Uh, Michael, you had mentioned earlier that you thought that my belief in imputation uh, was contrary to a lot of uh, LDS people. And I think the terminology is definitely different. And I think a lot of people initially are going to start saying it's enabled righteousness. He gives us the power to do. But once you start really having a a conversation, maybe it's different for me because I'm LDS uh, and they're not seeing it as an attack. But the, all the LDS people that I've talked to, once I start saying, you know, like we're saved by grace, even after all we can do, like there's really 
It's not us. No matter how much we try, we cannot. There's so many ways you can offend God. I think uh, this is what Matthew was talking about too. Like this is the real law. Like this is what really was supposed to be required is it's much more than, than just the basics uh, that y'all have been talking about. And I mean, you think about all the ways that you can offend God, no one would ever make it to heaven. And I think most LDS will agree that yes, it is pretty much, it's all Christ. Like his righteousness has to be put on us at at judgment. Um, I don't remember where I was going with this. Well, let me, let me throw some stuff in and and you can, uh, you can fill in the gaps. So first of all, I happen to know a couple of LDS apologists that, that know what imputation is and would disagree with you vehemently, just so you know. Uh, uh, there are definitely some that, that say that this is not uh, compatible with, with LDS beliefs, but I think it actually, it actually can be as long as it's attached to, uh, you know, one of the ordinances or, or something like that. I mean, the Book of Mormon does say that, you know, we, we are saved by uh, relying wholly on the merits of, of Christ. And if that's not imputation, then I don't know what is, you know, but, but I thought it was funny kind of listening to these two guys because they're telling, they're giving a very different message. It, it's almost like they said, let's give this, uh, this speech, but then they didn't actually compare notes because, you know, this first guy he says that, uh, yeah, perfection means loyalty. But then at the very, very end, you know, like the last two minutes, uh, Tyler's like, yeah, perfection, it means to be complete. And and he goes with kind of more of the traditional LDS view. But I'm like, you guys are saying the exact opposite thing. It almost, like, you could almost take clips from these guys and intermingle them, and it would be a debate, you know? <laughs> yeah, that, that's what's really interesting about the video. David, thoughts on that? Uh, so, yeah, back to, to perfection. Uh, my, my thoughts on the perfection thing, there's two thoughts that I have. One of these... Michael and I were talking about earlier today, but uh, first off, I mean, later he does come back and say, you know, it's complete. And the reason that he didn't say it the first time was because he hadn't been, you know, he hadn't completed the atonement, which to me is kind of a hard stretch. Um, my, my interpretation and the difference between those was he was resurrected at that point. Um, so to me, when he's saying be perfect, even as I or your father, which is in heaven uh, is perfect. It's almost more of an invitation to come to the celestial kingdom, be, be perfected more or less in a resurrected body. Um, that, that was one thought. The other thought that Michael and I were talking about is uh, Michael had mentioned right before he said that in Matthew, he was talking about his father and uh, there's, he might not have been excluding himself at all. It's just, he's talking about his father. I think either way that, that could be uh, um, the other thought that I had was there's, there's been a lot of scriptures late or not scriptures talks in general conference lately uh, that have really kind of helped us try to get over that perfectionism. And one of them was elder Holland uh, be perfect eventually. Uh, and then elder Russell and Nelson. Uh, oh shoot. I'm going to have to look up the talk. I apologize, but it was not this passional conference, but the one before uh, specifically said, don't worry about perfection. That's not in this life. And so I think there has been some very uplifting messages that have been presented to the church in regards to perfection um, being more of a, this is something that will happen later. 
let me let me go back to my question I asked you earlier about um, whether all baptized LDS members are inheritors of the celestial kingdom with regards to some of the comments you just made. Because um, those who inherit the celestial kingdom are said to be just men made perfect, right? So men who were justified and then made perfect. Um, so my question would be, what if, you know, what if that process of perfection is not completed? What And, and so what you're left with is, when you think about that, is you're left with, okay, so there's this person on this continuum, you know, here is where they are, here is perfection that they need to achieve uh, to be a just person made perfect. And say they, they stop in the middle, right? Um, and the rest of that perfection isn't completed. Um, just want to get your thoughts on that, given some of the, some of the recent uh, conference addresses you, you referenced, you know, that this, this completion of the perfection is going to be something that happens later. Um, my question would be, why doesn't it happen for everyone on LDS teachings? Um, so first off, uh, I do believe that we could say we are perfect in Christ right now. Uh, the moment that you take his name upon you, you're clothed in his robes of righteousness it's not your righteousness. It's his. Uh, I'm perfected in Christ. Um, the being perfect eventually, uh, I believe it's in the Doctrine and Covenants where it talks about being brighter and brighter until the perfect day where you can see Christ as he is sort of thing. Uh, and to me, that's discipleship. We're becoming more and more like him. Uh, and almost everything about the second part of the video, I agree with in terms of discipleship, not salvation. Um and to me, that's where it's talking about being perfect eventually. That's the part that we're focusing on uh, is becoming a better, a better follower, a better Christian, um, and, you know, getting rid of, of all of our, our sins and striving for progression on our path of, of discipleship. But, yeah, I, I would say anyone that's uh, a believer in Christ, well, in LDS theology, anyone that's been baptized and entered into the covenant, uh, they have their robes of righteousness of Christ. Their name is, his name is upon them. They're perfect in Christ. So on your view, will there be any baptized Latter-day Saints in the terrestrial kingdom? Or will that only be uh, those who are not LDS and, and do not accept LDS baptism uh, by proxy? Um, that That's an interesting point. You know, I know there are uh, the term Jack Mormon uh, where you know, they get baptized because of a girlfriend or something, uh, or there was a girl that thought that the missionaries were hot. So they got baptized. I mean, there's all a whole number of reasons that people, uh, get baptized. And ultimately that that's the check mark box is yes, you've entered into this covenant. You have his robes of righteousness upon you, but I mean, most Christians would say that, you know, it, it's gotta be a change of heart. Right. Uh, so I think even with the baptism, uh, Christ, who was it, David, where the Lord's like, he looks upon, it talks about him looking upon the heart. And, and I think that goes hand in hand with the covenant. I mean, if you're baptized, but your your heart was evil, the reason you did it had nothing to do with God. You can't hide that from God. He knows all. Um, now, if you were baptized for the wrong reasons and you go inactive and you come back to, to the faith, 10 years later. And at that point, your heart now is in the right place. I'd say those two go together. And now you don't have to get rebaptized unless you left the church. You're, you're good. Uh, but I'd say probably the majority, I, I, I wouldn't have a problem saying that they're, they're good. Who, who effectuates that change of heart? 
Jesus. So it's it's a work that Jesus does, not the person. I, I think it's got to be a, a combo. Uh, the Old Testament's uh, filled with lots and lots of references about Israel being wicked. Uh, they've done dot, they've done dot, they've done dot, but my hand is stretched out all the day long. Uh, so much like, uh, well, maybe not like Peter, <laughs> but uh, similar in the fact that we're, we're sinking, we're, we're doing wickedly, whatever it might be, and his hand is reached out and we grab it, just like ancient Israel. Okay. So I, I guess at Matthew. some point we have to accept it. We have to reach out, but his hand is the, the one that's reaching out to us. Yeah. So um, there, there's a passage in Ezekiel chapter 36 that, uh, you know, kind of talks about um, God's promise of a new heart. It's, it's, it's part of the, the prophecy of the new covenant that would come. Um, and it says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Um, Ezekiel 36, 26. So uh, I, I think that the, the work of regeneration, which is that giving of a new heart, uh, regeneration is the theological word for that. Um, that that's a wholly a work of God. It's not something that we can effectuate. Um, and that's, that's where I think that, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of some, as, as Michael was pointing out, um, there is uh, some interesting, almost disagreements going on between Taylor and Tyler in the video. Um, Taylor is kind of teaching this uh, almost a more Christian view of, you know, you're made perfect in Christ and as a believer, and um, you don't have to make yourself perfect. That will eventually come to you, uh, but also ultimately through Christ, uh, not through your own labors and efforts. Um, and then you, you have Tyler kind of come on the scene and, and he presents a view that, that it's this kind of upward spiral. Um, so in any case, uh, I want to, before I kick it over to Matthew to get his thoughts on this, I want to um, just share really quickly what uh, John MacArthur says about Matthew 548. Uh, you shall be perfect. He says um, in his Bible commentary, Christ sets an unattainable standard, which sums up what the law itself demands. Uh, and if you look at James 2.10, right, if you if you fail in any part of the law, you're guilty of the whole, right, is what James says there. Um, Though this standard is impossible to meet, God could not lower it without compromising his own perfection. He who is perfect could not set an imperfect standard of righteousness. The marvelous truth of the gospel is that Christ has met this standard on our behalf. Matthew, any thoughts on what we've been talking about? Yeah, um, I have quite a lot, so I won't go into all of them, but... Uh, I was reading, so I have a commentary, the doctrinal commentary on the Book of Mormon. It's the only commentary in the Book of Mormon I have. It's by Joseph Fielding McConkie, Robert Millett, and Brent Topp. Uh, and I was re- looking at what their view was of this passage to see if it kind of lined up with this video. Um, so on verse, or on 40, it says, uh, I would that you should be perfect. That's uh, verse 48, right? Of 35:12. So in this commentary, he says, this is a staggering, a sobering, and for some, a stifling commandment. It must be viewed in perspective. No person, not the mightiest apostle or the greatest prophet, save Jesus only, has ever navigated the roads of mortal life without sin. No one but the Savior has done so in the past, and no mortal shall accomplish that task in the future. How then do we proceed? We are never justified, this is a quote, we are never justified in lowering the lofty standard held out to followers of the Christ. 
nor are nor our I hate it when they do this, nor are our actions or attitudes approved of God if we suggest that the Savior did not mean what he said when he called us to the transcendent level of perfection. Our task is not to water down the ideal, nor to dilute the directive. Rather, we must view our challenge with perspective, must see things as they really are, but also as they really can be, close quote. That's Robert L. Millet from uh, By Grace Are We Saved, page 89. And then he goes on, they go on to explain, some have attained perfection in the sense that they did all that was commanded them, in the sense that they gave themselves wholly to the accomplishment of the will of the Lord. Specific persons like Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and Job are named in scripture as those who became perfect in their generation. President Brigham Young explained that, quote, we all occupied diversified stations in the world and in the kingdom of God. Those who do right and seek the glory of the Father in heaven, whether they can do little or much, if they do the very best they know how, they are perfect. Be perfect as ye can, for that is all we can do. To be as perfect as we possibly can, according to our knowledge, is to be just as perfect as our Father in heaven is. He cannot be any more perfect than he knows how, any more than we. When we are doing as well as we know in the sphere and station which we occupy, here we are justified. Close quote. And that's from Deseret News Weekly, 31st of August, 1854. So they point out that we are commanded to be perfect. So not to be, and I think that's in contrast with what they're saying in the video, because in the video they're saying, we're not actually called to be perfect. We're actually, we're called to be loyal. We're called to be faithful to this covenant path. But they're admitting here, and that's kind of what I've been taught is in the past that the LDS leaders taught that, no, the commandment is to be morally perfect. But at the same time, Brigham Young goes to say, well, it's also dependent on your knowledge and your sphere and your capacities, things like that. So the per, the, the the standard of perfection is also kind of changing. You know what I mean? So it's like they say, Jesus called us to be absolutely perfect, but you know, at the same time, the perfect is different depending on who you are. So I think that's kind of a little bit of inconsistency there. And then when we're talking about from this video, they're saying, um, at least in the first part, like the, we're supposed to be loyal. We're supposed to be faithful. That's perfection. So as long as we're doing, we're staying on the path, you know, we're staying on the, the tracks, we're perfect. So I see kind of an inconsistency there, especially when you look at just the text of the scripture from Matthew five, I was going to kind of bring up, um, I mean, um, so the, it's from the, the Greek word teleos, teleos, sorry. And, um, so the definition is having reached its end being complete or perfect, you know, so basically all translations say, be therefore perfect or be perfect, or you shall be perfect. Something like that. Um, it does, it can connote also being complete fully grown or fully matured, things like that. And so one thing I, that I bring up with LDS is I say, okay, it's, we agree. It's important to follow the commandments. We love Christ. We should follow the commandments, right? We're on that same page. Jesus is commanding you to be perfect. How do you as a Latter-day Saint, how are you fulfilling that command? And I asked several Latter-day Saints that, and I didn't get a straight answer. They kind of pushed it back on me and said, well, I won't go into that, but they kind of pushed it back on me in my position. And I said, no, 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 I'm not saying that I and myself am working to be perfect. I am perfect because I am justified through faith in Christ by the grace of God and the perfect righteousness of Jesus's entire life. That positive righteousness has been credited to me. So like David, like you're talking about, like having, having the robes of righteousness placed on you when God sees me and when God sees every true believer, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And that's the only way we can keep that commandment. It's that's what imputed righteousness is. It's not about, it's not about staying on the path or, you know, continuing to do what you're or continuing to try as hard as you can to keep all the commandments. It's having that perfect righteousness of Jesus applied to us. 
Because if we try to do it on our own, like Paul said, you've got to keep all the law if you want to be perfect. You've got to do all of it. But that's obviously impossible. So the really only way to be saved is to have Jesus' righteousness credited to us. And when we look at Romans 5, chapter, or Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So since we have been justified, justified being a past reality, something that happened through faith, we now have a continuing peace with God. It's an amended relationship. We're un- when we're united to Christ, that enmity between God and man, it's gone. We're completely united to Christ, his righteousness, and we have the spirit of God in us. So there's unity with the believer and, and Jesus. And so, and, and yeah, I agree that the discipleship is important. We do need to strive to follow Jesus. We need to follow his commands, follow his example. But at the moment of belief, everything that we need or every, every commandment that we should have kept, that we broke, everything sinful that we did, all that is forgiven. And we are promised eternal life and we have peace with God. Yeah. Thank you for that, Matthew. Uh, I'll just say amen. Um, and, and if you think about it, uh, we've talked a little bit about what, you know, the distinction that they make between Matthew 5, 48 and 3 Nephi 11, 48, 12, 48, uh, 13, 48, which one is it? Um, but in any case, the, the difference being 12, 48. So the difference being that, uh, you know, in, in, in the Matthean version, Jesus says, be therefore perfect, even as your father, which is in heaven is perfect. And in third Nephi, he's represented as saying, be therefore perfect, even as I or your, and your father in heaven is perfect, right? So he's adding himself into the equation in the third Nephi version. Um, and the Taylor, you know, he starts out this video talking about perfectionism and that that's not necessary. And we don't need to view ourselves that way. We don't have to try to be perfect. Um, and yet when they kind of undercut all of that, when they talk about third Nephi twelve forty eight, and, and, you know, and kind of make the point that, that Jesus wasn't fully perfect until he had been completely obedient to the commands that God had given him to give his life on behalf of humanity. Um, and then once he had done that, then he was perfect. And he could say, he could make that claim of himself that uh, be therefore perfect, even as I. Um, and so it's, it's almost like they undercut and say, see, see, even Jesus had to be perfectly obedient to what the father had given him. Um, and so then when you, when you think about what they're saying about these commands that come from Latter-day prophets that, that change the stipulations for what we need to do to show our loyalty, then, then you're back at the place where LDS theology has classically been, which is you, you need to be perfect, perfectly obedient to these specific commands given to you by God's representatives in order to ultimately become perfect. So, David, you want to say something on that before we go on? Uh, yeah. So there's just, I, I kind of, growing up LDS, uh, me and Michael were probably similar where, you know, we'd have struggles, whatever it may be, and constantly finding ourselves less than perfect uh, and, and maybe beating ourselves up a bit. Uh, I found a lot of sympathy growing up with Nephi. Uh, here's Nephi, star of the Book of Mormon, you know, building a ship, being led to ore, uh, shocking his brothers through the power of God. I mean, some crazy miracles, seeing angels. Uh, and Second Nephi 4, you know, he's, I, I call this the, uh, oh, what do I call it? The Psalm of Nephi. Anyways, it's like he's just like beating himself up. When I can, when I desire to do good, I, uh, 
I'm encompassed about because of the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. Oh, wretched man that I am. The second Nephi 4, 17. And he's kind of going on about, you know, how unworthy he is, um, which I think is something that no matter where you are in the gospel as an LDS, uh, you can always find something that you can, whatever the sin is or whatever the lacking is, uh, you know, we, we didn't give gratitude or we didn't do our family home evening or we didn't do dot, 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 whatever it might be. We're right there with Nephi, wretched man that we are. Um, but I, I love what he says in verse 19. And then he kind of goes on and says it again in, uh, at the end. Uh, but based, oh no, I turned it. Verse 19, uh, he says, 2nd Nephi 4, 19. Uh, and when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. Uh, and then at the end, he talks about how he trusted in Jesus. Um, verse 30, uh, oh, my heart crying to the Lord and say, oh, Lord, I will praise thee forever. Uh, 31. Uh, anyways, but it's kind of that that thing, you know, like as we're following this path, what I would want to call just the path of discipleship, we are going to fall short. We are going to fall. Uh, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to trip along the way. But we can look back and say, I know in whom I have trusted, and we should be able to have that complete trust in, in the Savior and his atonement. All right. Thanks, David. Any any thoughts on that from you, Michael or Matthew, before we go on to talking about Tyler's input in the video? All right. So uh, the bulk of the video is uh, teaching presented by Tyler Griffin. Uh, he focuses on the Beatitudes as an eight-step process that, quote, leads to perfection. He even draws them out as stair steps on the whiteboard. Uh, step one, he says, you must be poor in spirit by recognizing the gap between you and perfection. Step two, he says, you must mourn by recognizing that you are not who you, are, who you need to be. Uh, step three, uh, you must be meek by being willing to submit to all things the Father shall inflict upon you. Step four, you must hunger and thirst by being driven to actively pursue God's will. Step five, you must be merciful to others and yourself to continue to progress on the covenant path. Step six, you must be pure in heart by having pure intentions in progressing along the covenant path. Step seven, you must be peacemakers by spreading the goodness and light and revelations that you found along that covenant path with others. And step eight, he says you will be persecuted when you follow the covenant path. So what did you guys think about the way Tyler taught the Beatitudes in the video? Um, so I thought that uh, a lot of these steps were redundant, that they were kind of the same thing said a couple of times. And I didn't understand why he was saying that they were different steps, uh, for instance. Uh, so like steps one and two, I thought were what I would classify as being the same thing. You must be poor in spirit, recognizing the gap between you and perfection and then step two, you must mourn by recognizing that you are not who you need to be. Uh, to me, sounds like it's it's pretty much the same thing. Uh, and then being meek, submitting to the Father. Um, and after that, hungering and thirsting after righteousness is just, to me, it sounds like a sanctification process. But I think trying to, to say that all of these steps are uh, what you have to do in order to reach perfection uh, doesn't make a lot of sense, especially because you know, some of these things may happen before others, you know, like step eight is uh, being persecuted. And it's like, well, what about people who, uh, who are not even members of the church who are persecuted? You know, David and I, we have ancestors uh, who were French Calvinists, 
and they were massacred. So does that mean that they were perfect? You know, according to this video, it sounds like they were, even though Mormonism disagrees very heavily with Calvinism. And so it, it doesn't really work, I think. But uh, I'm curious on you guys' thoughts. Yeah, do you uh, want to go first, David? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, so I uh, have kind of mentioned my thoughts on this a little bit already. But uh, yeah, I, I do agree with you, Michael, that it, in the terms of the Sermon on the Mount, that these things are not necessarily like it was interesting to think of this as being tied into repentance. Uh, and he did mention that this is kind of a continual cycle. Uh, so, you, you know, you might get to uh, persecution and peacemaker on, on one subject, you know, like maybe you're the peacemaker with, with family history or something, you know, you get those old people that that's all they seem to be able to talk about. Um, but you know, they're driving in the car or they're picking up their phone. They can't figure out how to answer. And they, they start thinking bad words, you know, there, there's different levels. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't remember where I was going with that. Can, but, I, can uh, I throw David yeah. under the bus real quick? Yes. And then I'm, I am going to have to head out here in just a second as well. I wanted to thank you guys all for, for letting me be here, but go ahead, Michael, throw me under the bus before. I <laughs> <get out. laughs> yeah. Thanks, thanks for coming on, David. Yeah. We, we appreciate, we appreciate it. Um, I thought it'd be kind of an interesting thing, bringing a real live Latter-day Saint on to discuss this. Cause you know, we, we can talk about LDS doctrine all the time, but I think there's just a little bit more weight to it. And we have a, a real practicing faithful Latter-day Saint uh, to talk about it with sometimes but uh, it's kind of funny, and this is something he talks about a little bit later, but he talks about how it's not a one-time event, that, you know, it's, uh, it circles back around, and it's like this, you know, circular staircase going up into heaven, um, and we'll talk about that more here in a minute, but uh, you know, it's funny, because I talk to David, like, every day on the way to work, and I'll say this, David is uh, amazing, uh, really a selfless guy. In a lot of ways, you know, I always think of him as being a good person, but I think, you know, every single day while we're driving to work, <laughs> I'll hear him just suddenly like have bursts of road rage <laughs> while we're driving. And I'm just like, hmm, that doesn't seem to be getting any better. <laughs> it's been like a year. <laughs> oh, man, I know in whom I have trusted. Ouch. <laughs> This, the spirals uh, condensed into a donut hey, on that one. You know what? I, uh, I think there's hope for those with road rage, but there's no hope for those of us who are old. So I think you're okay, David. And I'm sorry about that at the beginning. I don't know if that's going to be edited out. You're, you're not as old as I thought you were. No, I was telling him I thought he was 60 when I talked to him on the phone earlier. Maybe he just doesn't look as old as he actually is. You age well. All right, guys. Well, y'all continue. I'm going to head on off. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, thanks, thanks, David. David. Have a good night. But uh, yeah, so I'm not just just throwing David under the bus. You know, I've I've got issues too, and uh, and they yeah, like calling people old. Yeah, you know, like just being kind of rude and and not very sympathetic, <laughs> and you know, things like that. I I definitely have issues, and and they're not improving. You know, at the rate that this uh, that this video would imply that you should be improving. You know, I mean, it, it really gives the impression, I think, that you should be able to see this difference and almost calculate your ETA on when you're going to reach perfection because 
the change is going to be so obvious. And I think that that just ties right back into this toxic perfectionism. You know, just delaying it does not really fix the problem. But we can talk about that later if you want to. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll get into more of what Tyler says. Uh, I want to get Matthew's thoughts here real quick on on the eight step process. But, uh, you know, what I would say is, and, and you know, we've heard uh, people like like Laura Lynn uh, say it. She's a she's a friend of ours who witnesses to Latter-day Saints. Uh, and, um, you know, her, her take on, you know, the messaging that Latter-day Saints receive is, is that, you know, what what they give with one hand, what Taylor gives with one hand in the beginning of this video by decrying perfectionism, Tyler takes away wholeheartedly with the other hand at the end of this video. So Matthew, what are your thoughts on this eight-step process that Tyler presents? So we started off the video by saying he, when they talked about uh, these beatitudes, he kind of didn't pay attention or he lost focus or something when he was in seminary. And he said it's because he thought that there was one group over here that was poor in spirit. And then there was one group over here that mourned. And there's one group over here that are meek. And so I agree with him that, that, that his conception of what the Beatitudes are was uh, skewed. And he admits this also. And, but I don't agree with his, his step of taking it. Well, this is now a ladder that Jesus is saying. Step one is this step two is that because you could kind of interchange all of them, you know, like it, it doesn't really necessarily follow the step one automatically leads to step two. It's like you could move step one to step five and step four to step seven or whatever. And it would be kind of the same thing. Um, it's kind of like the same problem with uh, Star Wars episode one, where Yoda says fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. But you could also say that suffering leads to fear, fear leads to hate. And what's the other one? But you know what I'm saying? Like they're kind of interchangeable. So it's like to say that this is a step-by-step process that Jesus gave didn't really follow for me. Okay, good. I, I thought you were going to say that each of the Star Wars episodes are interchangeable, but interchangeable. But I know that's not your position. So no, no, definitely not. Definitely <laughs> not. And we're and we're just not going to talk about uh, anything after Episode Six. Basically, nothing happened after Episode Six. But wow, that's where you are now. All right. <laughs> oh, the Mandalorian. Man, I forgot about that. How's that going to work out? I don't know. I'm still disappointed to find out that there wasn't Baby Yoda the whole time. <laughs> so yeah, right. he was. He, yeah, so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to set you straight there, Michael. I'm gonna have to set you the, the entire Star Wars timeline. I'm gonna test you on it next time. So you were you were swayed by my suggestion that he is Baby Yoda reincarnated? No, because no. because they were both at the Jedi Temple at the same time. How do you know? Because he was born 41 years before the Battle of Yavin. Don't ask me how I know that. I just know that. Paul, weren't you there? I mean. <laughs> and there it is. There it is. See, <laughs> see, I thought when David came on and was like, man, I thought you were an old man. I, I went straight to, oh, that's just because Michael's always <laughs> razzing me about that. But no, he's like, no, I just legitimately thought you were old. <laughs> well, I mean, you probably thought you were the same Paul that wrote the New Testament. I'm not. No, I'm not. Are you admitting something? Wow. <laughs> No, I am not. Um, all right, so let's let's uh, let's play the next video clip for what uh, what Tyler says. Uh, let me pull that up for us. Uh, nobody wants to be persecuted, but you'll notice in a fallen world, when you when you're doing this kind of thing, it will draw attention, and you will find persecution. And ironically, sometimes the persecution comes from loved ones who are closest to you. Sometimes it comes from people who should treat you better 
And ironically, at a deeper level, sometimes the persecution comes once again from that person in the mirror who, who expects perfectionism, not a process that leads to perfection. Um, you'll notice eight steps. We went from where we are to where we're, we're, we're almost there. You just do this once and you're good, right? There's this little, this little factor right here, this, this greater gap. Brothers and sisters, this is not a one-time event. Discipleship, the covenant path, it's not an event. It's a long, grueling, at times beautiful and marvelous and, and wonderful, and at other times extremely difficult and hard and lonely process. And there are some who are on the covenant path pressing forward, going through dark periods of testing and trials, who feel like they can't go on. It's too hard. There's too much being asked. There, it's, it's, it's too heavy. And brothers and sisters, we all have uh, people in our lives who are in those kinds of, of uh, struggles right now. Part of our role is to be a peacemaker, to not, to not condemn them or judge them for their struggles or their, their uh, trials of faith, whatever they may be but to love and to encourage and to support and to be with them until God sees fit in his timing to, to shine the light once again into their life and to illuminate their path forward as they continually struggle forward. All right, guys, what do you think about that uh, portion of the video there? I have, a, I have a really hard time with that portion of the video. Um, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, we said that the covenant is all about being loyal to God and not perfectionism. And then this is the part where it's like, well, actually, it's all about perfectionism. Um, you know, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but Thursday, you know, kind of thing. Like in the very near future, we need to be, you know, uh, kind of catching, getting close to it. And, you know, I kind of see this idea of a covenant path a lot with, with the LDS online and and they'll say things like, well, as long as I'm on the, on the path, you know, I'm, I'm good. You know, even if I'm not perfect right now, I'm on the path. The problem with, with a path is that it leads to two places. And if you're facing the wrong way, you know, and, and, and he talks about these people that are going through these struggles. And, and I would assume that that means that they are going down the staircase and not up. And so I, I, I would think that they have to make that, that ground back up. And so you're not really going anywhere, if that's the case. If you're stagnant for a while, if you are backtracking, um, then those gains that you are actually making are loss. They're losses. And so it, it does look like a long, grueling process, and it is definitely not something that is easy. It's certainly not like what Jesus describes, you know, when he says, take my yoke upon you, uh, for my burden is light. You know, that it is a completely different message. Jesus actually says that it's easy, but what he's saying is that it is a long, hard, lonely process, which is completely unbiblical. Yeah, definitely. Matthew, thoughts here? Yeah. So I kind of wanted to mention something that, that Michael had said before, and I'm not disagreeing with him, but I wanted to kind of throw my two cents in there. When we were talking about how, or maybe it was you, Paul, but how, how we were saying, like, they, it almost seemed like they said, okay, here's your departure point. Here's your destination. You should be able to track, okay, it'll take me about this long to get there to this point of perfection. You know, we may not get to it in this life, but it'll get it to it in the next. 
but at the same time, I think that it's not totally wrong to also look at our lives and to see in the past how God has worked in our life and how on this path of discipleship, we have grown more in the Lord. We have, we have become more mortified, you know, as, as to our sin. Um, if you read the, the epistle of 1 John, he talks about loving God. Those who love God are known by God because we were loved by him first, things like that. And he kind of, and he finishes that epistle by saying that you may, he says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears, hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. And I think he kind of, he's kind of pointing to the rest of the epistle, pointing to these evidences. You know, if you, do you love your neighbor? Do you love God? Do you confess that Jesus was risen from the dead? These kind of things, these are evidences we can point to and say, this is how God has worked in my life. And we see, we still see throughout scripture, um, all the commandments, you know, to, to follow Jesus, to, to, uh, to endure the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, perfecter of our faith. That's Hebrews uh, chapter 12. Uh, we also see uh, we need to make our calling and election sure. Uh, we need to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. So there's, there's all these um, injunctions to save believers, to continue the race, to endure, to stay faithful. And the temptation to turn away from the faith would have been very strong back then. Like, I'm a full believer that whoever, whomever Christ saves, he will keep them in the faith. He's the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. But one of the ways that God, the means that God uses to keep us, you know, to, to keep us on the path is these commandments, is the word of God, is the means of grace. And so, um, yeah, so I, I'm, not, I'm not against a lot of what he said here. I, had, I actually agreed with a lot of what he was saying in terms of repentance, turning away from sin and toward Christ. And we should be willing to make peace with others, you know, to turn away from our sins. I agreed with a lot of that. But yeah, I do agree that with you guys that um, there's no, I don't know, there's no hope. There's no hope in that message. You know, there's no guarantee. There's nothing that says Christ has finished the work for you on your behalf. And because of that, through your faith, you can be perfected in him now. There's no hope for that. The hope is like, okay, if you stay on the path and you're sure that you keep working hard and don't stop, you know, if you keep working, there's a, there's a good chance you'll be, you'll make it. But how do I know five, 10 years from now, I'm not going to fall off that path. You know, there's no guarantee where scripture says that the spirit is, is uh, the pledge. It's kind of like this. God gives us a spirit as like, okay, here's your down payment. Here's promise that, that you know, that you will be with me, that you will, you are saved. But I don't think you have that as Latter-day Saint. You can, you can have everything you need to achieve celestial kingdom. But if you eventually turn away and you, you, know, you turn away from the faith and you reject your covenants and things like that, you, you don't have that promise anymore. You, know, you have to stay on the path. So I just, I don't know. It, it doesn't give a lot of comfort to know that it's kind of like, it's like on one hand, they say it's all, it's all about Christ. Then on the other hand, it's like, but it's really up to us at the same time. You know, it's up to us to stay on that path. So it's just, it's just, it reminds me of my days as a Latter-day Saint. And I really struggled with that because yeah, it, it doesn't, I don't know. It's difficult for me to reconcile those two teachings that they, that they give over the pulpit. Yeah. All right, Michael, I'm going to jump in here as moderator. He was referring to something you said, so you now get to rebut. Thanks. Thanks. Um, yeah, I totally get what you're saying, Matthew. Um, so I wouldn't have a single problem with what he said about that whole analogy about how this is a repeating process. Um, what I have an issue with is that this isn't talking about a sanctification 
process he's talking about to become perfect. In other words, to actually be um, acceptable in God's eyes that we have to keep doing this and the just the toxic perfectionism that I've seen at cause and Latter-day Saints in some of the discussion boards that I've been in, you know, where it's like, I, there's one guy in particular that I debated a few times where he's like, Oh, I just I have to be better today than I was yesterday. And that becomes, you know, every day that passes, that becomes a more difficult thing to do. If you're talking about a day by day sort of thing. And when I've seen Latter-day Saints take that kind of perspective um, it's not something that I, I really don't see a lot of hope in that. But yeah, I do agree with you, Matthew, that it, as far as a um, like a sanctification standpoint, um, yes, we should be striving to to see sin and, and to be godly people and to look back and see what God has done in our lives. But uh, yeah, I, I just uh, I just have a problem with that being our means of, you know, kind of earning and meriting salvation. Uh, so that's all I meant by it when I was saying that. I, I was I wasn't trying to correct you or something. I think I was trying to clarify. But yeah, I, I agree with you that there's there's really is no distinction. At least I don't know the brother the 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 position that David shared with us. I don't think is the standard LDS view. I don't think so either. And so they don't have this conception of being externally declared righteous, being credited with Christ's righteousness and sanctification to me it was kind of all together you know as you're being sanctified you're reaching towards perfection and perfection is the goal and that's what you need to be going towards and i don't think you can really say okay you you know god has put a stamp on you he's he's sealed you to be his you're guaranteed eternal life i don't think a latter-day saint can say that you know if you follow their traditional teachings maybe it's changing i don't know but yeah and i think some of that's just been from a lot of discussions that, that david and i have had um but even with his position, even with believing that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us at some point, you know, it, it sounds like, you know, we can reject that gift later on and, and it can be unimputed. We can be unadopted. Like there's still the LDS ordinances are going to have to play a role. If you're a believing Latter-day Saint, you can't, you can't take that out of the equation. It has to fit in there somewhere. Well, one thing I wanted to add really quick, Onto that was I wanted to get David's view, but I also saw that the conversation was going kind of long with him. Uh, you guys asked some really great questions to him earlier. I was going to ask him because when he said that he believed that you know that Jesus's righteousness is like a robe that you put on when you're baptized, and I thought, okay, well, didn't Jesus keep all the commandments of God? So if you're given Jesus' perfect righteousness, wouldn't that also include the righteousness that's required in the temple ordinances? Absolutely, yeah, that is the uh, the correct question. Yeah. to ask from there yeah and it's definitely hard to see how how uh this the the kind of the bulk of this video from tyler is good news uh as you were saying matthew there's 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 really no hope in it right and he he really emphasizes um that this is not an event right he equates the covenant path with discipleship and and, and david even said he you know he kind of agrees with that um i don't agree with that conflation uh, of the covenant, this covenant path with discipleship, because of what you pointed out, Michael, is that what he's describing is a, a path to perfection, right? To be, to be seen as worthy, to be seen as uh, ready for God's kingdom, right? Uh, no unclean thing can enter the kingdom of God, right? According to the doctrine and covenants, and so you can't be an un, you can't be unclean in any way. And 
Tyler is describing the path that makes sure that you're not going to be unclean. And it's a, it's a long and lonely process. Now, I, I totally agree with you, Matthew. One of the best sermons I've heard uh, by, by our pastor at church was, was about the fact that, you know, many people hear the, the message of grace and salvation by grace. And they think, oh, that's awesome. It's wonderful. It's so life-giving. And they think that the Christian life is going to be an easy life. And it's not because you do get into discipleship and the sanctification process. And that's a tough process, right? Um, but when you're going through the sanctification process, you've had the event, you, you're justified, you've had Christ's righteousness applied to you, and you are promised and guaranteed eternal life, right? And so, you know, we, we talk about being born again. Um, you know, when, when you're born again, you're a babe, and you can't do anything uh, to bring about, you know, you're, you're kind of helpless, Right. And that's there, there's there's meaning in that metaphor of, of being born again. Uh, so you know, do I agree with some of what Tyler said here? Yes, but ultimately, what he's presenting, what he's shoehorning in here, is the LDS view, which does require perfectionism. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I was I, I agree with you totally. It's like I could agree with portions of it, but it's in a completely different context. So that context really shapes and informs the entire conversation you know it's like if you hear one person talking on a phone and you hear them saying some things oh yeah that makes sense you know uh, you know i agree you know such and such leader he's a good guy and then you hear the other but if you were to hear the other side of the conversation and they're talking about some other completely different person you know you're like oh well never mind that's you know i don't agree with that <laughs> so it's kind of the same thing it's like i can agree with some parts of it but it's like it's just tweaked so slightly ever so slightly to make it a different gospel yeah. Yeah. And it, and it really comes home when you when you tie in the fact that they set this up with with this um, idea of uh, Jesus kind of reconfiguring the requirements in, in the Sermon on the Mount and then throwing in there as Latter-day Saints, they say we have modern day prophets who do a similar thing. Right. So, OK, so when when are the requirements going to stop being shoveled upon the shoulders uh, of Latter-day Saints? And, you know, when it just, I just find it interesting, you know, when Tyler's describing the way that people feel, uh, there's a reason they feel that way. It's because the LDS gospel isn't the good news. Um, so, all right, let's, let's, let's watch this last final clip from the video uh, and comment on it and we'll close for, for the night. Let me pull that up. Now, you ready for this? What was the promised blessing for those who were persecuted for his namesake? It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hmm, that's interesting. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That rings a bell. You've heard that before. Look back at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hmm, I wonder, I wonder if it's possible that Christ connected this first and this eighth step outcome in such a way to say, this isn't a one-time event. This is actually a very long, repeating process. You do it again and again and again, and just when you get here, persecution makes you aware of other gaps that you have, other things that need to be worked on that you can then feel bad about appropriately, turning to the Lord to be comforted, turning to his will, seeking to find and know his will, being willing to forgive you and others who are struggling with these things you're working on for the right reasons 
spreading the, the piece that you've found, and the process goes on, and I go on and, and on through time. Bringing us back to something we talked about clear back in 2 Nephi 31, that discipleship really is going in circles. A lot of people grow weary in the church, feeling like they're just going in circles, doing the same things over and over and over again. They are, but they should be doing them at different levels as they progress. It's a plan of progression on the covenant path. All right, guys, it's a plan of progression on the covenant path. What do you think about that? I was looking at the picture of the staircase, and I was thinking, man, what happens if you uh, fall from that top stair that is really going to hurt? Mm. I mean, it already painful enough climbing all the way up there. It just seems like it's uh, too much risk and not enough reward. Yeah. Yeah, and I almost feel like, you know, the saying, you know, like uh, a Hollywood screenwriter couldn't come up with this. Like, they, they even show that that image of the endless staircase. I mean, it is so classic, right? It, and he talks, talked earlier about how hard it is. And it's like, man, you know, the Christian life and, and, and sanctification and discipleship, it's, it's not easy. But where's the hope in this message? Yeah, it really is like, hey, this is, <laughs> you know, Jesus did it, so you've got to do it too. You know, it's your turn now. It's right. up to you to walk this this un, this never-ending staircase. And and the, what I hear from a lot of Latter-day Saints is they say, "Well, we don't have to finish it in this life." You know, that's kind of that's that's kind of like the one hope that they have is like, "Well, you know, I just got to do the best I can now, and I'll have eternity to work that out." But that almost sounds like purgatory, right? The Roman Catholic view of purgatory, where you've got to purge all these sins for decades, centuries, thousands of years, who knows how long. Uh, I don't want to be, you know, repenting of every last little itty bit of sin that I've got that I probably committed when I was two years old. And you know what I mean? Like working out my salvation in the sense of like achieving perfection by my works. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'll never get there. Like I'm, I'm a hopeless cause, you know? So I, yeah, I really struggle with that. Yeah. Michael, any thoughts here? Um, aside from that, I mean, uh, not really. I think Matthew hit it right on the, right on the head. You know, I, I see people, I see Latter-day Saints say that all the time too. Like, well, in the next life, I will, I will be perfect. And, and I usually ask them like, well, is it, is it easier to repent in the next life or is it harder? And they always say it's harder in the next life. And so then I say, well, what, what hope do you have of accomplishing it there if it's harder and you can't do it in this life? I mean, to me, it just sounds like a really hopeless proposition and and i it is so freeing not to have to hold on to that anymore i mean i was uh you know it's it's a pretty bad place when you as a latter-day saint realize you're not going to make it in this life and, and it's like man even with however many years i think i still have whether it's 30 or 40 years you know based on how well i'm doing i'm not going to make it before i die and um it's just, it's a weight that, you know, nobody should have to carry. And, and I really pray that the LDS people will come to understand the gospel and have that weight lifted off of them someday. Yeah. I'm glad we got to have David on um, and get his thoughts and, and, and let him kind of interact with us on these topics. Um, I, you know, I wanted us to do this show in response to this video because my sister had sent it to me. Uh, I want my sister to know that I love her. I want her to know the joy and the peace and the just the the ultimate knowledge that uh, comes with knowing Christ as Savior and knowing uh, Him in a relationship that 
that is saving, uh, that gives you that, that peace and that joy. Um, you know, Matthew, you kind of alluded to in your, in your comments just now to Philippians 2.12. Um, I want to read that out. Uh, and I want to include verse 13, uh, because a lot of times Latter-day Saints will, will uh, throw Philippians 2.12 out there. You know, like, yeah, you've got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know, fear and trembling because you might not make it, you know, kind of kind of use of that passage. I want to I want to read out what that passage actually says. So Paul here says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And in verse 13, it says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love that passage. And when I first saw that passage in totality with verse 13 included and realized what Paul is actually saying there, that the fear and trembling comes not from a fear of not being able to perfect oneself, um, but rather from the knowledge that it is a, it is God who is working in you. And that should, that should induce righteous fear and trembling to realize that that we are temples of the Holy Spirit and what that actually means uh, and the peace that that brings, knowledge that the event uh, of Jesus on the cross taking upon himself our sins and paying that debt and uh, now we're clothed in his robes of righteousness, that event has taken place. That's peace. That's knowledge. That's uh, that is the gospel. And that is something that is absent from this video. Yeah. I was going to point out too, that, um, I read Romans five, one earlier, uh, but I did, if you go on and read and continue on that and thank you, Paul, that was beautiful. Thank you. I just wanted to mention quickly that, um, so I, I read verse one where it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through him. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so knowing that they are redeemed, that they're accepted, they're justified. They say that they continue on verse three, Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we don't see, we don't see trials as like, okay, part of this process to make us perfect to hopefully eventually reach this goal we rejoice in sufferings knowing that we, re- we receive sufferings because we have been accepted of God. We are children of God, not to, so that it's just, you know, part of a stepping stone to get to a better place. It's like, yes, we, sh- we struggle, you know, Christians struggle, but at the same time we have hope. We, we know Christ is our savior. And I, I, met, I felt like when I was Latter-day Saint, that when I was trying to reach God, I was not only struggling against my sin and the sin of the world, but I was struggling against God. You know, I felt like, I was trying to prove myself to him and I didn't have anybody on my side, but we know that we have a perfect mediator, a perfect savior in Christ. I just wanted to touch on uh, John chapter one as well. Uh, verse, starting in verse six, or I'm sorry, uh, verse nine, uh, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And uh, I just see a lot here kind of disabusing what what was said in that video there. Um, First of all, that when we believe in his name, we have the right to be the children of God. 
it is it is so simple it just happens uh right there at believing in his name um it is not through the the will of blood the will of the flesh the will of man it is not through this striving and and uh and working to achieve something or to merit it it is by the will of god and uh, what really strikes me about this verse is it's just that we we become children of god we are members of his family and you know none of us who have children just because that child backslides in some way we're not going to say you're not part of the family now you know that that child remains a member of the family even if they are going through something and, and trying to become better people or struggling with something you know it's and i i see that with uh with the gospel um with uh, with what god how god actually deals with us is he doesn't take his righteousness back he doesn't unadopt us until we get our act together um, we are assured that salvation um through him and you know he's got this he's got us in a grip of iron and and he doesn't let go and and to me that's what the good news really is it's not that there's this giant staircase that i have to go up it is that i have a god um a sovereign god who has me in the palm of his hand and so what is there to fear yeah beautiful and matthew thanks for revisiting romans 5 that was beautiful as well um i'm reminded michael on that that last point you ended on about you know i don't have to climb that long spiral staircase um I'm reminded of Jesus's words that that he will lift him up on the last day, right? It's not a staircase we climb. Uh, when we're in Christ, he will lift us up. Amen. Amen. Good stuff, guys. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page. And we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org, where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. Stay bright, fireflies.
for your soul For my yoke is easy and my burden is light I am the way and the truth And if you love me and keep my word I'll make my home in Make my home 